are enough. You have everything that you need within you to rise to the task. Problem isn't that you are too weak, it's that you are too powerful. So let me say it again, you are enough. Doesn't that sound good? No amens, good job. (laughs) It sounds nice, I wish it were true, but it is a noble lie. Um, A lie that our society has really sort of absorbed, this idea that, that we're enough. And maybe we even whisper that to ourselves some days when the parts we don't like about ourselves sort of float to the top. You're enough. That is a lie that has fueled the self-help industry to swell to a yearly net worth of $13 billion. I'm enough. Not only do we lie to ourselves, but we pay the self-help industry $13 billion a year to lie to us and to tell us that as well. Now, a couple of months ago, um, after my wife Devin's uh, brain surgery, we got a package in the mail, really, really sweet, and somebody had sent my wife a t-shirt, and guess what was on the front of it? You are enough. And uh, she shows it to me, and she's got her, her head shaved, and she's holding up this shirt. And uh, I said, hey, I said, what do you think about that shirt? And she said, well, she said, I get the sentiment. You know, I know it's meant to be encouraging. You got this. Don't give up. Get better. I said, you going to wear it? She said, no. I said, why not? She said, well, because I'm not enough. To which I said, are you enough for me, girl? You know? <laughs> That's what husbands are supposed to say. You are enough. It is everywhere in our culture. And if you own the t-shirt, ladies, I'm sorry. Um, Forgive me. I'm not picking on you, I promise. But I do. I see ladies with that emblazoned across their shirt um, that, that, that you're enough. And it does. It sounds incredibly nice. So... We have been in a series together called Slogans, and and what we've been doing, as many of you know, you've been here from week to week, we've been looking at popular sayings in our culture, we've been running those through a biblical filter, and we've been seeing how they stack up, and so we begin with the idea of live your truth, we said, no, you don't live your truth, we're going to live God's truth, because there's only one unifying reality, and that is God's truth. We talked about that God won't give you more than you can handle. He will, in fact. And I think the reason he does that is because it pushes us, it drives us to God. We listen, we pay attention when he gives us more than we can handle. And the Bible tells us that we cast our cares, that we put our burdens on Jesus. We said, God just wants me happy. Well, he's okay with you being happy. However, he wants you holy before he wants you happy. We talked about where the society says a lot of times, judge not, you're not supposed to judge me, where scripture actually says judge rightly, that we're all held to the same standard. We said, follow your heart. No, we're just going to follow Jesus. Love is love. No, um, all you know, forms of sexuality are not equally valid. We said, in fact, God is love and he loves you enough to tell you the truth, to give you parameters on how you live your life. Last week, we talked about forgive and forget. Sometimes it's hard to forget. However, we can still choose to forgive. And so today, we're going to turn our attention to this, this phrase, the slogan, you are enough. And so if you're taking notes, thought number one is, well, what does this mean? What do we mean by this slogan? I am enough or you are enough. Let me open the dictionary and give you the definition, Webster's definition of enough. So this is an adjective occurring in such quantity, quality, or scope as to fully meet demands, needs, or expectations. Uh, An adverb in or to a degree or quantity that satisfies or that is sufficient or necessary for satisfaction. So when we say I'm enough, we have to ask enough for what? 
Am I, Josh Fultz, fully meeting demands, needs, and expectations? When it comes to God, when it comes to a perfect, holy, all good being, do I measure up? Am I sufficient? Do I fully meet God's expectations? Am I enough? Have you ever asked that question before? Let me get honest with you this morning, okay, as I ask that question about my own life. Um, maybe you can relate. Sometimes I certainly don't feel like enough. Do you ever feel that way? And the reason I don't feel like enough sometimes is because, in fact, I'm not enough. Now, I know that flies in the face of our cultural idea of what it means to be a man, that you're to be stoic, that you're to have it all together, that you don't show your weakness. But I'm going to be honest with you this morning, uh, and I know some of you feel like I do, so let's talk about it. When it comes to being a husband, I'm not enough. Um, Some days I'm short-tempered. Some days I'm stubborn. Maybe most days I'm stubborn. Sometimes I'm selfish when it comes to being a dad. Sometimes I'm uh, impatient. Sometimes I raise my voice. Sometimes I overreact. Sometimes I mess up. When it comes to being a pastor and getting to serve in, in leadership in this assembly, I'm certainly not enough. I do not contain within me all the wisdom needed. Sometimes I mess up. Sometimes I say the wrong thing. Sometimes I forget things. When it comes to being a person, I'm not enough. I fall short. I mess up. Sometimes I do what I don't want to do. And the things that I should be doing, sometimes I let those kind of fall to the wayside. And then there's, then there's God. Where one day I will stand in front of God, in front of this perfect, holy, good being. As a sinner, I'm going to fall short. That is to say, I could never have worked my way up to God, not in a thousand or a million lifetimes. And so anyone that can look you in the eye and say that you are enough is either ignorant of certain facts or they're trying to sell you something or manipulate you. But here's my question this morning, and I want to ask this of the church at large. Maybe as people, as Christians... If we could just admit to ourselves and to admit, admit to one another that I don't have it together, that, I am, that I'm not enough, maybe that's what church is supposed to be like, where it's a bunch of people who know, who, who know the truth and who don't need the lie that I'm enough. Maybe the church is supposed to be a group of people who all know that we're broken a group of people who all know that we fall short and so we can come together and we can take off the mask and we can admit that we're all in it together, that we're all sinners who fall short, that we all mess up and in our deepest sense of being that we have, we could collectively say, hey, I'm not enough and I don't have to come here and try to fool you and make you think that I am. Now, if you're taking notes, let's talk about this. Looking for worth in all the wrong places. Here is what I know. That everyone, from the youngest to the oldest, wants to feel valued. We want to feel accepted. We want to feel loved. It's innate. We all want to know that we have worth. That's why little boys run into the living room and they flex their muscles and they say, look at how big my muscles are, mom. And mom's supposed to say, "Woo! you could probably beat up your daddy with those muscles. That's why little girls run into the living room with their mom's high heels on and their pearl necklace and maybe some bright red lipstick on and they say, look how pretty I am, Dad. 
And dad's supposed to say, woo-wee, you sure are pretty. It's when we post the cool things that we buy on Instagram so people will look at what we have and say, man, that's pretty cool. How do they afford that? You know? Because we want to ascribe to ourselves a sense of worth. It's why sometimes we even buy things based on the status that it will bring to us. Why? Because we want to be valued. And maybe this will make me valuable if I can just show my intelligence or if I can just show my strength or if I can just show how hard I work or if people can see there's this beautiful lady that finds something of value in me. I'm enough. See, I have it all together. I'm okay. And then sometimes I meet people and man, they have a list of accolades. I mean, PhD, gobs of money, you, you name it. And they might be tempted to say, you know what, I am enough. Look at everything I have. Look at all that I have accomplished. But eventually, just like the Beatles sang, they're going to have to say, help. I need somebody. Because as we age, the years stack up, and eventually, unfortunately, our bodies become feeble, and sometimes along with our minds as well. And somebody else is going to have to come alongside us and help us through the moment. That is to say, we're going to be dependent on somebody else. So it doesn't matter how great you think you are. Eventually, there will be this humbling process that takes place. So what does Scripture say about this? If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be the first book of the Old Testament, first book of the New Testament, Genesis and Matthew. I want to start off talking about the original lie. The original lie. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was, was formless. It was void. And so this is where our story begins. A loving, intelligent, creative being made everything out of nothing. Both the visible and the invisible. And God made a lot of amazing things. Galaxies upon galaxies gigantic planets but then even down to the microscopic things that you can't see did you know a single drop of pond water contains thousands of single-celled organisms God created our world and he filled it with wonder and he filled it with beauty but listen to this out of all the amazing things that God made and God made some incredibly amazing things out of everything God made the crown jewel of creation was you. And it was me, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. In the image of, in, in the image of God, he created her, male and, and female. And there was this brief moment in history, ever so brief, where man didn't struggle to find his worth. Adam didn't have to walk through the garden and have some, you know, GQ brand name clothes on to get Eve's attention and for her to ascribe him value. It was inherent. It was realized because God created man in his image. Then you get to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent slithers in. The sneaky little snake slithers in. And he tempts Adam and Eve and here's what he tempted them to believe. That being an image bearer of God was not enough. He tempted them to believe that all that they had and all that they had experienced to this point in history wasn't enough. 
And he promised them that they would be fulfilled. And so instead of trusting God to fill them, they tried to look outside of God and man fell into sin. And instead of being filled, there was this great emptying that took place on that day. And ever since that day, man has had to deal with the ache and the void of an emptiness, something lacking. Now, we know we are not enough. However, we still have this temptation that Adam and Eve did to think that our value comes from something else other than through God himself. So I want to ask this question. When it comes to God, when it comes to the idea that I'm enough, well, how good is good enough? Now, some people might say, you know, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm pretty good. I mean, I'm no Hitler, and that's your standard. Wow, right? Good job. I do good things. Uh, God sees the things that I do. Well, how good? How good is good enough? Can I be good enough to please God? Can I work for his favor? Can I do enough good deeds to get to heaven to where my bad deeds, they're kind of, there's this, this, you know, this movement of the scales. Read Romans 3.23 to you. This is Paul writing, but God is inspiring Paul, so this is God writing. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, he would say it this way, there are none righteous. Righteous means good, having a right standing with God. There are none righteous, no, not one. Now, notice what God has revealed to us, that all have sinned. There's not a person who's walked this earth, aside from Jesus Christ, who has led a sinless life. Well, maybe you say this morning, well, well, what is sin? Well, sin is anything that displeases God, and that works both directions. The things that I should not do that God says, hey, don't do this. If you do it, you're going to hurt yourself. That's sin when I do those things. Then the other direction, God says, there are things you should do. If I don't do those things, that would also be sin. And it's not just our actions, but our sinful nature trickles down to our thoughts and our desires and our motives. So even the things that we think can be offensive to God. Sin is missing the mark. It's aiming at the bullseye. And just even being just a little off center, well, you say, well, what's the mark? Well, the mark is perfection. The mark is who God is. It's sinlessness. It's God himself. And if we are anything but perfect... Scripture says that we're not right with God, that we'll spend eternity apart from God. So it doesn't matter how good you are, how many good things you do, how much you help the poor, how nice you are, how great of a citizen you are, we have missed the mark. There's no good enough. The standard is perfection, and then there's everything else. Now, we see this play out in a passage of Scripture, and I want you to look at this with me. Go to the first gospel, Matthew, first book in the New Testament, and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Familiar story. You've got a young, upwardly mobile man who has the world by the horns. Matthew 19, 16. It says, and behold, a man comes up to Jesus and he says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, this guy comes to the right person. He asks a legitimate question. I don't think he's being facetious. He comes to Jesus, teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Now, there's a little bit of a problem in the question, isn't there? Because he says, what good thing must I do? 
What do I need to do to earn eternal life? Jesus answers him, verse 17. First part of it, he says, And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? He says, there is only one who is good. Now, what's Jesus doing? Well, he's showing this guy the standard. There is only one who is good. Who is that? Well, that's God, God himself, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so remember, Romans 3.23, all have sinned. Romans 3.10, there are none righteous. Verse 17, and he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. That's the standard. He says, however, if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. Well, what commandments is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the Ten Commandments. This was at the core of the Jewish law. And the man said to him, which ones? And Jesus lists them off. You shall not murder. Check. You shall not commit adultery. Check. You shall not steal. Lie. Honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this isn't all the Ten Commandments. This is a partial list in how we relate to other people. Look at verse 20. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. I've, I've kept all these commandments. What do I still lack? He says, I've done this. I've kept the legal code. I've done the works. He was a devout Jew. However, when I look at verse 20, I still see in this guy a restlessness in his heart. That deep down, he knows it's not enough. So he asked the question, what do I still lack? Even after keeping the law, he still feels empty. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell all that you possess and give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now, what's going on here? Does Jesus demand that when you come to him as a, as a lost person to become a Christian that you have to sell all your possessions? He doesn't demand that. Is Jesus saying that you have to work for salvation? No, because we've read other portions of Scripture, for it is by grace that you're saved through faith, not of yourselves, lest any person should boast. Ephesians 2, 8. This man said, I have kept the law perfectly I am good, even though his heart still seems restless. And so Jesus shows that to be good, the law must be kept perfectly. The first of the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. That is, that God is ultimate. And so all Jesus does here is he shows this man has not kept the law perfectly because his wealth was his God. That is what he put above God. Therefore, he had broken God's law. And guess what he was in need of? Grace. Just like you and I. Now go back to verse 16. I want you to see this again. Man came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Let me remind you of this. There is no good thing you can do. There is no collective good things you can do to have eternal life because you stand condemned because we've broken the law we fall short our good is not good enough now here's the thing it's not just the amount of sin that we do imagine this if somebody had been keeping tally of every sin that Josh Fultz has done oh my goodness what a list that would be so it's not just the amount of sin that we have have committed in our lives but it's also who we have committed the sin against a good 
perfect God. And so whether it's one sin or 10,000 billion sins, we still stand separated. Now I know so far it's been a lot of bad news this morning. We're going to get some good news in a minute. Before we do, can we ask this question? What's wrong with the slogan, I'm enough? What's wrong with the slogan, you're enough? Sounds nice, but the biblical data paints a different picture. Christianity, in fact, says, I am not enough. And the first problem with this slogan is that it's not Christianity, it's humanism. Christianity says, I'm not enough. Humanism says, you're enough. You've got what it takes. Pull yourself up from your own bootstraps. Christianity says that you're born a sinner, that we are wayward. Humanism says you are born good and you can learn to get better and better. Funny, society doesn't seem to be trending that way to me. Christianity says you need God. Humanism says you need you, that man is the measure of all things. I am enough is just humanism rebranded and repackaged to be able to put it on top of a t-shirt. Christianity says you are naked and vulnerable. Remember Adam and Eve after they sinned? What happened? They realize they're naked and they go and they get fig leaves and they cover themselves. Humanism says you can just cover yourself with fig leaves. Christianity says you have to be covered in something else. The blood of Jesus Christ. What's wrong with this slogan? Well, I think it puts our hope in the wrong place. Saying I'm enough, you're enough, it puts our hope in us that I can rise to the occasion. But here's what I know, and I think all people know this deep down, that we're not. That we are, in fact, not enough, and we try to find value in all the wrong places, and people look to all kinds of things to bring them meaning and value and purpose that they could have hope. And the future looks promising. They've placed their hope somewhere, and they're climbing this mountain, and as they get to the top, they look down the other side, and it is more disappointment. It's why Solomon, the wisest, wealthiest man to ever live, would say this in Ecclesiastes, I've seen everything that's done under the sun. And behold, all of it was meaningless. Solomon says, I've chased everything. And I have found out that everything under the sun is meaningless. So here's what I think. I think we need a new slogan. So ladies, if you have one of those t-shirts at home, you can go home and just add this to it. Because of Jesus, you are enough. Because of Jesus, you are enough. You see, the only way that I can be enough is because Jesus is enough. That is to say, Jesus paid my debt. And I want you to see this morning what exactly Jesus did. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this. It says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. And so here's what Jesus did. He came along, entered into humanity, suffered in the same way that we suffer, was rejected, was hurt by people, endured persecution, ultimately would be brutally murdered in my place. Substitutionary atonement. That is to say, because I'm less than perfect, far less than perfect, I was destined to die and be separated from God. But instead, Jesus comes, and he does what I could not do, lives a sinless life, and he dies in my place. He took on himself what was due for me on the cross. 
And so that's the best news we could ever have. It's the ultimate free lunch that Jesus died in my place. So how can we know Jesus? Well, here's what Scripture tells us. That if we come to the realization that we're sinners, that we can't good our way to God, that we can't work off our debt because the debt is too vast, we've sinned against a holy and perfect God. Scripture tells us this. If we come to an understanding of what Jesus did for us, we repent of our sins. That is to say, we look at sin and say, I don't want to do that anymore. Because I know it hurts God, it hurts me. I may struggle, but I don't want to be there anymore. So if we accept what Jesus has done for us, we repent of our sins and we make God king of our lives. That is to say, he calls the shots and not me. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Lord, that we will be saved. Scripture says this different way, that we'll have salvation, that we'll have a relationship with God, that we'll be adopted into God's family. So I want to ask you this morning, have you done that? And evidence that you've done that is how you live your life now. Now, we live in a time in history where we have many conveniences. And sometimes as Americans, unfortunately, we approach Christianity as a convenience instead of truly what it is. And there's this idea collectively in our culture within Christianity, unfortunately, that all I have to do to be right with God is just say the sinner's prayer. Now, don't get me wrong. The sinner's prayer is wonderful. But there's nothing magical about the words. And unfortunately, many people place their salvation based upon just a prayer. And their heart isn't right with God. There will be people who spend eternity separated from God who have prayed a sinner's prayer. There will be people who have been baptized on a Sunday morning who will be separated from God because God never had their heart. Nothing changed here. It was just words or a quick bath on a Sunday morning. And so the question is for us this morning, do we truly know Jesus? Has there been a time in our lives where we've repented of our sins, where we've accepted what Christ did on our behalf, and where we have given ourselves fully to God himself? And that is evidence the book of James talks about by how we live our lives in the present. The Apostle Paul talks about in Romans, because God is gracious and good and I know he'll forgive me, does that mean that I should just keep persisting in sin so that God will keep forgiving me and that grace may abound? Paul says, no. When you truly are in relationship with someone and you truly love someone, you live in such a way as to honor that person. Just like in a marriage, if I if truly love my wife, I'm going to be faithful to her. I'm going to serve her. I'm going to be with her every day. So I ask you this morning, do you know that you know Jesus? This is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. And if God is working in your heart this morning and you say, you know, I don't know if I know Jesus. Could we talk? I'd love to sit down and walk through this with you. Last thought under our new slogan, because Christ is enough, I am enough. I want you to see that you have immense worth in Jesus Christ. Be reminded, one, that you were made in the image of God. That image was not erased in the fall, but it was effaced. It was tarnished. But you still bear God's image. Then Jesus comes along, and how much does he love you? Enough to die for you specifically. And so, Christian, don't waste your time trying to be something so people will love you or like you or so God will love you or like you. You already have that in Christ. 
And so many people waste their lives trying to find value and worth in everything under the sun when you were meant to find your value in Jesus Christ. So do you know the Lord? And is he where you're finding your true value and your worth and your meaning and your purpose?